Welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ben Ristau from UConn Health, talking about treatment for clinically localized prostate cancer. I'm Ben Ristow. Um, I'm a urologist and urologic oncologist at the University of Connecticut, uh, also known as UConn. Um, uh, one of our residents, Dr. Wagner, is here also. She'll be collating some questions um, that come up. Feel free to enter them in the Q&A section. Um, I'll try to address as many of them as I can um, towards the end of the talk. Um, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about treatment for clinically localized prostate cancer. Um, that can be covered or need, would need much more than an hour to get it covered all in one, but um, I thought I'd look at the, some of the level one evidence um, and really take, a, take an examination of that. So I have no relevant financial disclosures. I am a urologic oncologist. Um, so as far as objectives, um, I'd like to review the current prostate cancer risk stratification and guideline recommendations. Briefly discuss some of the major screening trials and really the goal there is to assess what the cancer risk is like in the population. Uh, we'll kind of take a deep dive into the three major prostate cancer treatment trials that exist. Um, if we have some time, and if not, I'll include the slides when I post them online, but um, uh, a short foray into some of the radiation trials with a focus on the duration of ADT based on risk and where that comes from. So the 30,000 foot view, um, if we start from there, um, is the prostate cancer epidemiology risk stratification and what the guidelines actually uh, recommend that we do. So most of you know these stats, um, but there's approximately 191,000 estimated cases in 2020 in the United States. The median age of diagnosis is 66 years, um, and this translates into about 33,000 estimated deaths um, at a median age of 80 years. Uh, approximately one in nine men uh, will be diagnosed in their lifetime. That's a relatively high percentage, but the number that actually die from prostate cancer um, is, is relatively small. And so it is common, but almost 97% of men die from something other than prostate cancer. So I think it's helpful to keep that perspective as we kind of dive into the weeds with some of these trials. When we talk about risk stratification, um, there are many different ways to stratify risk. Um, they're, they're all quite similar, um, and um, I'll kind of go through them one by one. And management choices are based on both risk or biology, as well as life expectancy. Um, and there's a pretty famous quote from Blake Cady um, in the 1988 presidential address to the Society of Surgical Oncology, where he referred to tumor biology as the king and case selection as the queen um, when it comes to outcomes. And I think it speaks to risk and life expectancy uh, with regard to prostate cancer. Um, the original risk stratification that I'm aware of uh, was the D'Amico risk stratification. Um, low risk patients were defined as clinical stage T1C to T2A with a PSA of less than 10 and a Gleason score of 6, which is now thought of as grade group 1. Uh, intermediate risk disease, um, it was clinical stage 2B, uh, PSA between 10 and 20. Uh, and a Gleason score of seven, which is now grade two and three. 
Uh, and high-risk patients uh, were anything higher than uh, T2C, uh, PSA greater than 20, or a Gleason score of 8 to 10, uh, which was grade groups 4 and 5. The AUA um, has added uh, a very low-risk stratification uh, to this, uh, and that is essentially when uh, less than a third of the total biopsy cores are involved, less than 50% of any one biopsy core is involved, and a PSA density of less than 0.15 nanograms per milliliter per cc. Um, intermediate risk is stratified into favorable and unfavorable, um, and you can see there what, what those are. Uh, and high risk um, is uh, T3 PSA greater than 20 or grade group uh, four to five. <clears throat> Similarly, the NCCN has a risk stratification, um, very low risk and low risk. Um, intermediate risk is, again, divided into favorable and unfavorable, and this is actually quite similar to what the AUA recommends as well. The intermediate risk factors are either T2B or T2C disease, uh, or grade group 2 or 3 disease, or PSA 10 to 20. Um, they actually have a very high risk category, um, which is um, either clinical T3B or T4, a primary Gleason pattern of five, uh, or more than four biopsy cores with either grade group four or five prostate cancer. And I would be remiss in a UCF, uh, UCSF lecture series, not to mention the CAPR stratification score. Um, uh, this is a score that's derived by assigning a number, a point system, um, to PSA, Gleason score, T-stage, percent of positive biopsies, and age. And the sum of, the, of that score um, can be divided into low, intermediate, or high risk. And Dr. Cooperberg has done a lot of work validating um, the CAPRA risk stratification. So that's risk. How about life expectancy? Well, there are a number of life expectancy estimation tools. Um, Social Security Administration tables uh, are one. Uh, the WHO has some life tables. Uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering has a male life expectancy tool. <clears throat> and UCSF has an e-prognosis uh, tool for estimating life expectancy. There is also um, an NCCN guideline for older adult oncology. Um, and uh, they reprinted uh, a, <clears throat> a graph looking at life expectancy uh, from a JAMA paper in 2014. Um, and you can see that you don't have to get uh, very to a, a certain age group before our life expectancy of, of quote unquote 10 years that we use for uh, prostate cancer uh, starts to hit that point. So by age 75, most men, 50% essentially, have less than a, than a 10 year life expectancy. Um, so that puts that in perspective. And our guidelines, most of them that we have are stratified by risk. And I'm gonna focus on the NCCN guidelines, but they're all quite similar. Um, so for very low risk and low risk, um, this is uh, most patients in this category are gonna be recommended to have active surveillance. I'm not gonna get into a lot of details on that because um, this is the first spoiler alert. Uh, there is a, a COVID online lecture series uh, with Peter Carroll on May 27th uh, from nine to 10. And um, that is, uh, he'll, he'll go into great detail and he does a fantastic talk on active surveillance. So um, he'll cover that in this lecture series. For intermediate risk, um, when we look at favorable intermediate risk, if the life expectancy is greater than 10 years, active surveillance can be considered. Um, 
external beam radiation therapy or brachytherapy, uh, as well as radical prostatectomy with no detection. If the life expectancy is less than 10 years, observation is preferred, um, and um, external beam radiation therapy uh, or brachytherapy can be considered. Um, it, with unfavorable risk, um, all treatment options are available, radical prostatectomy, radiation with hormone therapy, usually talking about four to six months, um, or radiation with brachytherapy. Um, and again, if the life expectancy is less than 10 years, generally observation is preferred. For high and very high risk, um, uh, life expectancy greater than five years or symptomatic, um, external beam radiation with hormone therapy anywhere from two to years. Um, docetaxel can actually be considered for the very high risk population. Um, radical prostatectomy and pelvic lymph node dissection are also an option here. This is the second spoiler alert. There is another COVID lecture series coming in. Um, Ken Neppel from Iowa is gonna talk about high-risk metastatic and biochemical recurrence on May 9th. Um, so tune in. Uh, so I won't focus a lot on uh, the high and very high-risk populations um, uh, because that is also gonna be uh, discussed later on. So screening trials, this is coming down a little bit in the airplane from 30,000 feet to about a 10,000 foot view to kind of get a little better eye of the landscape. So why would I take a brief aside to talk about prostate cancer screening trials? And the reason is that it's critical to understanding and interpreting data from prostate cancer treatment trials because, because the screening trials identify the prevalence of risk categories in the population. So it gives you a sense of what's actually out there. So how common are low, intermediate, and high-risk prostate cancers in the male population? Um, most of you have heard about ERSPC screening trial and the PLCO trial. <clears throat> the CAP trial is a little bit less well-known, um, but it actually served as the feeding for the PROTECT trial, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, this was done in the UK. It was a cluster randomized trial of PSA screening. Um, it was called the CAP trial. It was a little bit different because it was a single PSA screening test. It was not multiple um, screening tests. Um, and the intervention group, um, about 75,000 of them attended this PSA clinic. About 6% uh, had a prostate cancer diagnosis. So that tells you how common prostate cancer is in the population. Um, a, a handful of them actually did not attend a PSA clinic and prostate cancer was ultimately diagnosed in 3% of those patients. Uh, the control group um, did not, was not offered PSA screening, um, and prostate cancer diagnosis was about 3 to 4%. So here's a, a chart, a table that compares the um, incidence of grade, uh, different Gleason grades among the three screening trials. Um, you can see that the incidences are higher in the RSPST and PLCO because they received more PSA tests and so more prostate cancers were identified. Um, but um, what you can see here is that for, for most, for all of the trials essentially, the most common grades in the population are Gleason grades six and seven, um, and also low clinical stage, so T1 or T2. Um, the vast majority um, of screening identifies essentially low and intermediate risk prostate cancers. Um, and I made this graph to show it um, to show it in a picture because I think it's a little bit easier to see. This is Gleason grade groupings. The blue is Gleason six, the orange is Gleason seven, and the red is, is Gleason eight to 10. 
And you can see that high-risk cancers are relatively rare in the population um, when, you, when, when you're detecting things by screening. Similarly, staging, clinical stage one and two when you're detecting things by screening is much, much more common than clinical stage three and four. Um, and, and when you screen more often, like in ERSPC and PLCO, you find even more of these lower and intermediate risk cancers. If you don't screen as much, you find some higher risk cancers because many of them start to present clinically. And so I hope that these are non-controversial conclusions from the three major prostate cancer screening trials that we have so far, are that most prostate cancers in the population are either lower or intermediate risk, and that high-risk prostate cancers are relatively rare. Um, and this is actually really good news for patients um, because most low-grade and intermediate-grade tumors have a long natural history. Um, Peter Albertson showed us this um, in his JAMA paper from 2005. Um, men who are older than 70 with low and intermediate-grade tumors are at least 1.5 times more likely to die from something other than prostate cancer. And I chose this particular graph because this is the Gleason 7 prostate cancer in the age 70 to 74 age group. And it shows you that after 20 years, only about 40% of them are dying from prostate cancer and 60% and of them are dying from something else. And almost all of them have died um, together. But it does make it really challenging to decide who benefits from treatment um, because if, if we're including everyone in the treatment trials, then even the people who aren't necessarily needing treatment are getting that intervention. And so it's a little bit difficult to tease out who really, be, who really benefits. And so the brief aside is that since most screen-detected prostate cancers are low in intermediate-risk tumors with relatively long natural histories, it may explain why the survival differences between treatment and observation are not as robust as we might hope, um, because these are the entry criteria of people that come into these, into these trials. So I'm gonna, this is, now we're gonna get into the weeds here and take a, a deep dive um, into some of these surgical uh, trials for radical prostatectomy, treatment trials with radiation, um, <clears throat> and also observation. And so there are basically three prostate cancer treatment randomized control trials that have been reported. Um, the Scandinavian Prostate Cancer Group 4, SPCG4, Pivot, and Protect. Those are the three major trials that, that all, all, all urologists really should, should know. Um, so I'll start with SPCG4 since that was the first. Uh, this was 695 men that were recruited from the late 80s to the late 90s. Um, after 1994, screen detector cancers were allowed, and this um, coincides with the advent of PSA screening. Most prostate cancers were detected due to symptoms. Uh, that was about 40%. And only 5% of, of men in this trial were detected based on screening. Um, so it, it tells you, you know, where in the disease process these patients entered into the trial. The watchful waiting group received no immediate treatment. The radical prostatectomy group um, started with a node dissection. If the nodes were negative, the prostatectomy was completed, but if the nodes were positive, the prostatectomy was omitted. Um, most people aren't doing it that now, but um, that was a very common thing to be done in the, in the 80s and 90s. The follow-up um, was every six months for two years and then annually. It included a DRE and a PSA, uh, and the bone scan and a CT scan were done annually. 
There were no routine adjuvant therapies given. Uh, local progression in the watchful waiting group was treated with a TERP. Local progression in the radical prostatectomy group was treated with either orchidectomy or um, uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists. Um, systemic metastasis were treated with orchidectomy or GnRH agonists. The primary outcome was disease-specific mortality. Secondary outcomes were metastasis-free survival, risk of local tumor progression, and overall survival. The age of patients was 65. The mean PSAs were high, probably higher than what we see now. Um, so in the watchful waiting group, it was 12.3, and in the radical prostatectomy group, it was 13.5. Only about 10% of patients were T1C, um, and, and three quarters of them were T2. 60% uh, of the population was Gleason 6, 25% Gleason 7, and only 5% uh, Gleason 8 to 10. And here's a chart um, that I made comparing the different reports that came out of SPCG4. Um, the median follow-up is across the first row of the chart. Um, it started with 6.2 years in 2002 and progressed to 13.4 years in 2014 and then 23.6 years in 2018. And you can see as you move from the left to the right of this table, essentially every outcome starts to favor radical prostatectomy the longer this, the follow-up is for. So for all-cause mortality, um, ultimately um, watchful waiting, 83% uh, of people had passed away by a median follow-up of 23 years, um, whereas it was 71% in the radical prostatectomy arm. For prostate cancer mortality, it was 31% in the watchful waiting arm and 20% uh, in, the, um, in the radical prostatectomy arm. There were more metastases noted in the watchful waiting arm compared to the radical prostatectomy arm. Progression locally was, was much more common in the watchful waiting arm. Um, use of, uh, of androgen deprivation therapies, more common in watchful waiting, um, and use of palliative radiation was about the same. Um, in the 2014 update, um, uh, the number needed to treat to prevent one death decreased from 20 at 10 years to 8 at 18 years. Um, and in men less than age 65, it decreased from 8 to 4. In the 2018 update, uh, the stat was that the median years of life gained after 23 years of follow-up was about 3 years. And the absolute overall survival benefit for radical prostatectomy was 12% at 23 years. When you look at risk stratification um, in the SPCG4 trial, um, the greatest benefit was found in low and intermediate risk patients. Interestingly, in the high risk population, now granted that there were few patients, um, but none of the outcomes uh, were significant except for the use of antigen deprivation therapy. So there was really no difference in mortality among high risk patients and the benefit was seen in low and intermediate risk groups. Well, what about quality of life? You can't have a prostatectomy discussion uh, about the benefits without talking about the drawbacks. So at a median of 12.2 years, um, there were 400 SPCG survivors compared to the control group of 281 men. Remarkably, at 12 years of follow-up, an 87 to 88% response rate was achieved. Um, and you can see that the quality of life amongst the people in the study uh, was slightly worse than a control group of men who did not have prostate cancer. 
but was pretty equivalent across the two groups. Um, anxiety was a little bit higher in the, in the um, trial groups um, compared to a control. Erectile dysfunction uh, was comparable in the watchful waiting and radical prostatectomy arms, although it seemed to bother the radical prostatectomy folks more. <clears throat> Urinary incontinence was clearly uh, higher in the radical prostatectomy group as compared to the watchful waiting group. Um, obstructive symptoms like weak stream or nocturia uh, favored radical prostatectomy, um, and the watchful waiting group had uh, worse obstructive symptoms. So what can we conclude about SPCG4? Uh, men who live longer derive a greater benefit from radical prostatectomy. Um, it persists in low and intermediate risk tumors, but not for high risk tumors, at least in this study. Uh, radical prostatectomy results in less local recurrence. Men who undergo radical prostatectomy are much less likely to require palliative treatments uh, compared to watchful waiting. Uh, the cost of these benefits, though, is reduced quality of life uh, with regard to erectile dysfunction and urinary incontinence. So moving on to PIVOT, uh, PIVOT being the second randomized trial treatment trial that we have. Um, this was uh, from the mid-90s uh, to the early 2000s, so this is when PSA was starting to be introduced uh, into the, into the uh, prostate cancer world. Um, 731 total men, um, 364 in the radical prostatectomy arm and 367 in the watchful waiting arm. Interestingly, there were 5,000 eligible patients and almost more than 80% of them declined to be randomized. <clears throat> um, the uh, inclusion criteria were that men had to be less than 60, 75 years old. Uh, their PSA had to be less than 50. They needed a negative bone scan and a ten, at least a 10-year life expectancy. Uh, the follow-up was every six months with bone scans at 5, 10, 15 years and at the end of the study. The primary endpoint was all-cause mortality, secondary endpoints, prostate cancer mortality, PSA recurrence-free, metastasis-free, and local progression-free survival. The original power calculations um, were to achieve a 90% power to detect a 15% relative reduction, which is the same as a 5% absolute reduction. At a median survival of 12 years required 2,000 patients. Now, obviously, they didn't get there <clears throat> since they only had 731 men in the trial. So they, because of these recruitment difficulties, they went back and did a second power calculation, um, reduced their power to 85%, and increased the, um, the, re the reduction or the difference they wanted to see between the two groups to a 25% relative reduction, which was a 15% absolute reduction at eight to 15 years of follow-up. <clears throat> this required 740 patients, um, which is about where they ended up. The mean age of the cohort was 67 years, so a little bit older uh, than SPCG4. Uh, about 65% of the population was older than 65 years old. The mean PSA was 10.2. Uh, about half of the population had a PSA less than uh, 10, and about three quarters had a, a PSA less than 20. Um, in 75% of the population, a PSA elevation was the reason uh, for a biopsy. So this is already much different and a much uh, earlier time course in the disease than SPCG4 was. 50% of them were T1C, uh, about 40% had peptal tumors. 
Uh, about three quarters were Gleason six or lower, 20% Gleason seven and five to 6% Gleason eight to 10. So many of you know that the primary outcomes, this was a, this was a negative trial. There was no difference um, in all cause deaths or prostate cancer mortality uh, reported at a median follow-up of either 10 or 12, uh, of up to 12.8 uh, years. Um, there was, however, a difference in bone metastasis um, between the groups. Um, so higher rate of bone metastasis in the um, watchful waiting group, uh, as well as progression and treatment for progression in those groups. Um, by risk category, um, there, was an, there was another interesting trend. So all cause deaths favored radical prostatectomy, um, but only in the intermediate risk group. Um, and, and so um, what about the quality of life? Um, so ED requiring treatment, as you might imagine, was higher in the radical prostatectomy group. It was about 15% compared to 5% in the watchful waiting group. Urinary incontinence required treatment, about 17% in the radical prostatectomy group compared to 4% uh, in the watchful waiting group. Uh, overall, however, there were no major differences in physical, mental, or worry about health between the two groups. So what can we conclude? Um, men with low-grade disease and less than 12 years of life expectancy do not benefit from prostatectomy. Uh, it definitely supports active surveillance in these men. The subgroup analyses were underpowered, as was the whole study, um, but uh, there may be a signal of benefit in the intermediate risk group. Uh, treatment for progression in the watchful waiting group was nearly double, sorry, that's a typo, that of the radical prostatectomy group. Uh, and men who undergo prostatectomy report sexual and urinary function compared to watchful waiting but this did not seem to impact the overall physical or mental health, at least in this study. So the last trial is the uh, PROTECT trial. Um, so this included uh, a little over 1,600 men uh, that were recruited from the CAP trial, that prior discussed screening trial. 545 were in the active monitoring arm. 553 were in the radical prostatectomy arm and 545 were in the radiation therapy arm. Now, interestingly, this is the only trial, at least that I'm aware of, that is comparing uh, radical prostatectomy uh, to radiation therapy in this, in this setting. So the active monitoring group, a little bit different than what we traditionally think of as active surveillance. Uh, so these patients uh, received a PSA every three months in the first year, every six to 12 months after, um, a rise of 50% in the PSA over 12 months triggered a repeat PSA about six weeks later. And if elevated, uh, biopsy versus treatment uh, was discussed. Radiation therapy uh, was given with uh, antigen deprivation therapy three to six months prior to radiation. Uh, 74 gray was given in 37 fractions. This is conventional fractionation. Uh, a nadir of the PSA, the lowest point, plus two, that's the Phoenix criteria that was used to determine uh, recurrence. Uh, the radical prostatectomy group was predominantly an open radical prostatectomy. Uh, a pelvic lymph node dissection was done if the PSA was greater than 10 or if Gleason 7 or higher. 
A PSA was done every three months in year one, every six months in year two, and then annually thereafter. Adjuvant therapy was discussed for either a positive small margin or extra prostatic extension on the prostatectomy specimen. Salvage was discussed, uh, sex therapy was discussed for a PSA of greater than 0.2. The primary outcome was prostate cancer mortality at 10 years. Uh, secondary outcomes uh, were overall mortality, uh, incidence of metastasis, clinical progression, treatment complications, including patient-reported quality of life. Clinical progression was defined as um, any of these, so metastasis, uh, development of T3 or T4 uh, clinical disease, long-term use of androgen deprivation therapy, ureteric obstruction, rectal fistula, need for urethral catheter secondary to tumor. So the median age was 62. Uh, median PSA was 4.6, so you can already see that this is um, a more modern trial probably to what we see now, um, a large lead time associated with the diagnosis when you're screening. Uh, 77 of the patients had six disease, and 76 were diagnosed only on screening and did not have palpable disease. 291 of the 545 patients who were assigned to active monitoring ultimately received treatment during the course study, and the median follow-up was 10 years. Uh, so what did we find? Only about 1% of people over the course of 10 years died from prostate cancer. Um, this is very different from some of the other trials, and the reason is most of these prostate cancers were detected uh, based on screening, and so we're at an earlier time point in the course of the disease. There was no difference in all mortality between active monitoring, radical prostatectomy, or radiation therapy. It was about 10% in all groups. Uh, there was a notable difference in clinical progression and metastatic disease. So about 20% of people in the act active monitoring arm experienced clinical progression compared to about 8% in the radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy arms and more patients develop metastatic disease in the active monitoring arm, about 6% compared to about two to 3% in the, in the treatment arms. So what about quality of life? Um, the study questionnaires were completed at baseline, six months, months, and annually thereafter. Um, the response rates for the majority of measures were greater than 85%, even at six years. Um, I'm in awe of some of these trials that are done in Europe uh, that they're able to get such profound response rates and follow up with these patients. It's pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. Um, so what about the quality of life? Urinary incontinence for radical prostatectomy was worse at six months. That's the first graph up on the right-hand side. So you see a precipitous drop uh, and improved, but remained both worse than active monitoring and radiation therapy at all time points. Um, after two years, incontinence was worse, but its actual impact on quality of life when you asked that question to the patients was similar to the other groups. ED was worse in both treatment groups and persisted, uh, and relative to radiation therapy, the men in the radical prostatectomy group experienced worse erectile dysfunction uh, compared to radiation therapy. And at six months after radiation therapy, bowel and irritative voiding symptoms were worse compared to prostatectomy and active monitoring. The urinary symptoms returned to baseline, but the bowel symptoms uh, did not. So the conclusions from PROTECT um, are that after about 10 years, uh, there is no difference in death from prostate cancer from screen-detected prostate cancer. 
which affirms active surveillance for low-risk prostate cancers, which is most of what you find by screening if you consider the prior screening trials. Erectile function suffers in men who undergo radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy with curative intent. There was more clinical progression in the active monitoring group, although 80% did not progress at 10 years. So 20% did, but 80% did not. Uh, the risk stratification outcomes are not yet available. It'll be interesting to see um, if those analyses are powered well enough to be able to come up with some conclusions about the intermediate and, and high risk groups. So we've gone from sort of the 30,000 foot view of what's out there to the screening trials a little bit closer to get a little bit more detail and all the way into the weeds with these uh, three trials. Um, and there are a few nuances that I, I thought I'd try to get across. Um, when we screen for prostate cancer, we find mostly low and intermediate risk prostate cancers because that is what is in the population. The subgroup analyses for unfavorable intermediate and high risk cancers in these studies may not be adequately powered, but these are the exact groups in which we want to understand the treatment benefit. And trials that recruited patients based on screening will take longer to see a potential fit to the treatment due to a lead time bias. So the question I think that is very hard to both communicate and answer is would you trade your current quality of life for a possible quantity of life 15 plus years from now? And I mean, these are, these are my answers. Um, I would say at age 55, probably yes. Um, at age 70, I think you're, you know, if you're a healthy person, you're gonna have a pretty long life expectancy at age 70. At age 65, maybe. I think it depends how health are. Um, at age 75, you're trading current quality of life for quantity of life years at age 90. Maybe not, but this is my 94-year-old grandfather with my son. He's 94. I would argue that the last three to four years of his life have been incredibly valuable um, as he's seen Lars grow up and as he's seen my brother's kids and his other grandkids' children uh, live. So you obviously can't know that you're going to live to age 94 when you're 65, but it's something that you need to help communicate to patients that there are quality of life years even beyond age 90 that are, that are possible. And then can more data help us answer these questions or are the answers a little bit more philosophical in nature? Um, so, you know, when you talk about population focused versus individual focused medical practice, when you look at an, a, a big view of the population, certainly PSA screening may not be a value, but when you're sitting there talking to a patient one-on-one -on -one in your clinic, that person either has an aggressive prostate cancer or they don't. There's no, there's no real in between. So that's, there aren't, no amount of data is going to help you answer that question. Um, it's something that you have to work on and help communicate patients. And then within patients themselves, are they risk averse or risk tolerant? Now there are some people who don't want to take any risk that they may die from prostate cancer. Um, and, and there are others who, would look at risk in a different way and say, you know, that doesn't sound so bad. 
Um, and I was reminded of this when I was watching, I don't know how many of you have seen the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. Um, but in his, going into his second year, he fractured his foot and he was unable to play the, the game he loved. And he ultimately was really pushing to get back out on the court. And he asked the doctors what his risk was of re-injuring himself. And they said it was about a 90% chance he'd be completely fine and about 10% chance that he would make you break his ankle and, and make it worse. Um, and so the way that it was put by uh, the owner um, was that if you had a really, if you had a headache and you had an opportunity to take a pill to get rid of it and nine of the pills cured the headache and one of the pills killed you, would you do it? And his response was, that depends on how expletive bad the headache is, right? So it gives you a sense of, you have to be able to communicate both the tumor risk, the biology of the tumor to the patient, as well as gauge their life expectancy and their risk tolerance, because everyone's gonna have a different answer uh, to that question. Um, so, I'm happy to take some questions on that portion of the talk. I have like three or four more slides um, to to go um, that I have in queue for to talk a little bit about radiation and androgen deprivation therapy. Um, but before we get there, um, that was a lot of me talking, so I'm happy to address any questions that you might have. Thank you, Dr. Rostow, for the excellent talk. And um, if everyone can also fill out the survey, that would be great. Um, if you've submitted your question into the chat, if you put it, um, if you can copy and paste it into the Q&A, that way it'll save it for those who um, wanna look at those answers later. Um, so our first question is regarding the natural history of patients who are relatively healthy um, and have organ-confined grade group 2 and grade group 3 prostate cancer. What would you tell them about the natural history of their disease? Um, so I think grade group 2 and grade group 3 are, are different. Um, if they're young and relatively healthy, um, and have grade group three, um, that's a primary pattern, Gleason pattern four, I think most of those patients would benefit from treatment. Um, uh, grade group two is, is I think, the, the frontier of surveillance and where, where a lot of people um, have uh, a little bit of difficulty answering the question. Um, we know from Lori Klotz's um, data from Toronto that, that patients with um, Gleason 7, 3 plus 4 disease um, do worse in terms of um, metastasis-free survival compared to grade group 1 tumors. Um, but I, when I have the conversation um, with patients about grade group 2 cancer who are healthy and ultimately probably will, will choose to have treatment, I sort of couch it in a, in a when is it convenient for you to have surgery kind of discussion. Um, I've had a number of patients who, you know, either they're going on vacation over the summer um, or they have a wedding in a few months. And, and I think the data would, would, would tell us that, you know, waiting three to six months or even longer for some of these patients um, and doing sort of an initial active surveillance approach um, isn't 
going to really compromise um, their, uh, their oncologic risk. Um, so in that, in that group of patients, I, I think there's a little bit of leeway. Um, in, the, in, the, in the grade group three patients, um, that, that starts to make me a little bit more nervous that they have a higher oncologic risk. Thank you. Our second question is about patients who choose watchful waiting. Um, what do you tell them about their risk of no treatment and specifically um, do you describe what dying of prostate cancer is like? Um, so that, that's a good question. I mean, I think it depends on, on the patient. Um, if, it's, if it's a young patient who um, you, you get the sense is just scared or afraid of, um, of, a, of a treatment option, um, then I think um, talking to them in, in real terms about um, some of the things that could happen um, if prostate cancer is left unchecked um, may help them make a more informed decision. Um, I think if you're if you're not talking to patients about, you know, either locally advanced disease and urinary retention uh, or bone pain um, as a result of uh, advanced prostate cancer, then you're also not giving them the information on the, on the, you know, the, the longer risk end of the spectrum to make the decision. Um, I think you also, in, in patients who are just generally averse to treatment, um, for whatever their reason is. Um, I think it's also important to provide them that sort of information. Um, so these are healthy patients. In, in less healthy patients who are either electing watchful waiting, um, uh, but you know, have less than a 10-year life expectancy, I'm usually not talking to those patients about it because I also, you know, I kind of don't want to scare them um, uh, about into more treatment than probably they need um, based on the available data. So th that those are the two differences. So I think if you were to stratify it, I would say in the patients that, that really are healthy and probably should have treatment if cure is their goal, uh, I think you're a little bit remiss to not discuss what advanced prostate cancer looks like. But in the patients who probably aren't gonna benefit from treatment, um, I don't know that you have to go into a lot of detail about that, but that's, that's my personal opinion. Thank you. Um, from Doug Ridier, there seems to be a transition in management from prostate cancer to focus on higher risk patients, but there doesn't seem to be any level one evidence that supports local treatment of high risk patients. Uh, what evidence is there to support treatment like radical prostatectomy in a high risk patient? Um, so, Ken Neppel is going to talk a little bit about that on May 9th, I believe. Um, but um, there is evidence um, from, uh, from Stampede and others on Latitude to look at radiation therapy um, in combination with systemic therapy um, and supporting uh, a survival benefit. Um, there has not been any direct evidence um, at least level one evidence that I'm aware of that radical prostatectomy um, is of direct benefit in the high-risk population. 
Um, certainly, I think there is evidence, and you can see it in these trials, that a radical prostatectomy helps with local control and reduces the risk of local progression and symptoms. Um, and that I would include that in, in the high-risk population. Um, but um, another thing I noticed as I was carefully going through these trials is that the many of the treatments that we're applying that seem to be commonly applied for high-risk prostate cancer now, upfront radical prostatectomy followed by radiation with hormone therapy, is, was, was not the standard um, in these trials. So I, I think the verdict is still out in terms of high-risk prostate cancer um, in, and, and how, how much um, uh, treatment of the primary tumor uh, will help. Um, I think also, um, you know, you're starting to see people um, exploring treatment of the primary tumor in low-volume metastatic disease. I know Brian Chapin is leading a SWOG trial um, looking at that. Uh, so these are all interesting questions that I don't know that we have the answer to, um, but, um, but it's a good question. And then finally, um, any comment on racial disparities or racial differences in prostate cancer outcomes or treatment specifically for African-American patients and how that might uh, relate to patients who have a strong family history? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that the, the outcomes uh, among the African-American uh, and Caribbean-American population are not as good as the Caucasian population. Um, both SPCG4 and PROTECT had a predominantly Caucasian population. Interestingly, PIVOT had about a 25% um, African-American population in that study. Um, and so I don't think there is level one data um, to, um, to really answer that question adequately. Um, but we do know, obviously, that people with a family history um, and um, uh, African-American men have higher risk and poorer outcomes um, compared to Caucasian men. Thank you. I think that's it for our audience questions. Great. Um, I'll pop through um, real quick since we have a little bit of extra time. I just have uh, four quick slides on um, uh, where, because uh, you hear about androgen deprivation therapy and whether you give four to six months or whether you give two to three years. Um, and, and most people, in, in my experience, aren't completely entirely sure where, where these data come from. Um, so um, this is the sort of the, the reference slide um, of, of where it comes from. Um, but the, the first trial is RTOG 9408. Um, these were primarily intermediate risk patients. Um, they were clinical stage T1 to T2B uh, with a PSA less than 20. Uh, it was a huge study. 992 patients got radiation alone. Uh, 987 patients got radiation with four months of androgen deprivation therapy. About 60% Gleason 6, 30% Gleason 7, and 10% Gleason 8 to 10. Um, low risk was 35% and intermediate risk was 55%, only 10% in the high risk category. Uh, the median follow-up in this trial was 9.1 years. Uh, overall survival was 57% in the radiation group, 62% in the radiation with androgen deprivation therapy group, 
disease-specific survival, 8% uh, in the RT, uh, sorry, this is mortality, 8% and 4% in the RT plus ADT. Um, PSA recurrence-free survival, 59% in the RT group, 74% in the RT plus ADT group. Um, and metastasis-free survival also uh, was, was not significant. Um, so in this RTOG 9408 trial, overall survival, disease-specific survival, as well as PSA recurrence-free survival all favored the addition of uh, four months of antigen deprivation therapy. There was another trial um, out of Boston, D'Amico and colleagues. Um, these were patients with clinical stage T1 to T2B with one unfavorable risk factor, uh, PSA greater than 10, but less than 40, Gleason 7 to 10, or EPE or SVI uh, on the MRI. Uh, 104 patients had radiation alone. Uh, 102 patients had six months of androgen deprivation therapy. Most of these patients, um, about 75 to 80%, were Gleason 6 or 7. Only about 15% um, had Gleason 8 to 10 disease. The median follow-up was 7.6 years, and both uh, overall survival and disease-specific survival uh, favored the radiation uh, with ADT uh, group. Uh, so in summary, um, four to six months of ADT uh, is recommended uh, in addition to RT uh, for the intermediate risk uh, population. For high risk, there was an EORTC study um, that was done um, that was a high risk um, but not metastatic population. Uh, they received either radiation alone, 198 patients, or radiation with three years of androgen deprivation therapy, that was 203 patients. Uh, most patients were Gleason 7 to 10, most patients had T3 or T4 disease, 80 to 90%, and the PSA was greater than 20 um, in over half. The median follow-up was 5.5 years, um, and uh, the uh, overall survival, disease-specific survival, PSA recurrence-free survival, and metastasis-free survival all favored the addition of androgen deprivation therapy. Uh, another RTOG study, this one's 9202. Uh, these were patients with T2 to T4 uh, disease. Um, one arm was radiation with short-term androgen deprivation therapy, so three to four months of ADT. That was 763 patients. The other was radiation with two years of ADT, 758 patients. Um, more than half of these patients had Gleason 7 to 10 disease. Um, about half of them had T3 to T4 primary tumors, and the PSA was higher than 30 in a third. Median follow-up was 11.3 years. Um, the overall survival was not significantly different, uh, but disease-specific survival, PSA recurrence-free survival, and metastasis-free survival all favored the, the long-term uh, two-year androgen deprivation. So, this is the summary here, two to three years of ADT is recommended uh, in addition to radiation therapy for high-risk prostate cancers. Uh, so if you're wondering where, where those, uh, those recommendations come from, uh, that's where they come from. Uh, I'm happy to take any other questions before we finish up, um, but otherwise I'll, I'll plan to sign off. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.